0: Well, obviously there's a lot packed into what I just read, and we don't have time this morning to get into every detail of everything that we just read. What I want to do is I just want to trace the main argument that Paul is making here, the main flow of thought and, and the most major contours of what he is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 28, that section that I just read for you. Now... Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. This is in verse 17. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, the hopes that we have are unfounded and ungrounded hopes. And Paul raises two particular hopes, and that's where I want to start today, is by talking about the two hopes, the two great hopes that the Christian has. These are in verses 20 through 28. The first hope that the Christian has is resurrection. We believe, as Christians, that death is not the end. We believe... Furthermore, that the only option after death is not merely hell, that there is more than more than one form of afterlife. So neither death nor hell has to be our lot. We believe that there is a resurrection which is positive, which is, which is good. We believe that there is a better life after this one for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe that death will not have the last word. We believe, as John Donne said, that death, the sleep of death, is simply the gate to heaven. We believe that whoever believes in Christ Jesus, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Christians believe that death is not the end for us. And so when when someone in Christ Jesus dies, as Paul says elsewhere, we sorrow. It is sad. But we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. For we believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That there is this separation of body and soul at the point of death where the body goes down into the ground. But the soul doesn't cease to be. The soul goes to be with the Lord. And then we believe that at the end, when Christ Jesus returns, the body of that deceased person will be raised and reunited with its soul, and that we will live again, body and soul. This is a, a fundamental Christian hope that we have. I was talking with my, one of my sons, I think it was, I think it was even just this morning actually, as others this morning or yesterday. And I said, if you saw a lion in a zoo, would you be afraid? And he said, no. And I said, but well, what if you were playing out on the east, and in the pasture on the east side of our house, where there's no fence and it's just a big open area. And I said, what if you looked and saw there was a lion under the tree? I was made trying to make the point to him that the context of things matters. I said, would you be afraid? He said, no. <laughs> and I said, I said, why? And this is what he said, because if you're a Christian and you die, you just go be with the Lord. <laughs> you see? So this is this is what the Christian hope does for us is it makes us a lot less afraid. Right? Or it can make us a lot less afraid. Come what may, bring it on, right? Come. Come hell or high water, I'll continue following Jesus. Because I really have nothing to fear. What are you going to do? Throw me to the lions? Right? Cut off my head? What are you going to do? In the end, I will rise. I believe in Jesus. And Jesus said, whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall shall he live. So I will live. So I'm not afraid. And I have this hope that when... The work on earth is done. There is rest hereafter. That even though weeping may last for the night, joy comes with the morning. That the sufferings that we're currently experiencing are not forever, and they're not all. Not only, like the, the nihilist says, well, the sufferings are not forever. Eventually they come to an end, and then you pass into annihilation and oblivion. But what that still means is that the sufferings are 100% of your existence but we believe that the sufferings are a blink of an eye and that we will be raised and that there is a wonderful life everlasting for those who are in Christ Jesus so this is the, this is the first Christian hope is personal resurrection I think we're all fairly familiar with this you're, you're forgiven of your sins and so you go to heaven when you die and your death is not the end Right? we're pretty familiar so I'm not going to camp out there this morning we've probably all heard that elaborated at length at other times the second of the two major Christian hopes is a better world now imagine if you were resurrected simply to live this life forever and All of the aches and pains and all of the situations that you're facing and all of the sorrows and all of the difficulties that you're going through just go on and on forever. Well, some of you might choose that. and You might say, well, it's better than being non-existent. But I think there's a fair number of people who would say, no thanks. I don't want that. Right? Our hope is not simply that we'll be resurrected, but that we'll be in a better world. Paul speaks about this in verses 24 and following. He's not making a digression from his major argument. He's continuing with his major argument. He said that our faith would be futile if Christ was not raised, and the hopes that we have would not come to pass if Christ has not been raised. And then he goes in to talk about what those hopes are and how Christ actually brings them about. So what he's doing here is he's showing us the other hope that is dependent upon Christ Jesus having been raised. In verse 28 he says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Well, that's a real mouthful. And so many people just kind of stop at 23 and go, of the resurrection. Yes, if Christ has not been raised, then I will not be raised. This is the wonderful truth of 1 Corinthians 15. But it's actually, it's actually really encouraging And really invigorating to come to understand what Paul is saying in verses 24 to 28. To understand it properly, we need to go back and look at Psalm 8, which is what we just sang. In verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For, and you're going to see quotation marks there, God has put all things in subjection under His feet, end quote. Where is that from? The answer is Psalm 8. So let's turn back there. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you care for him? Yet you have made him. So who's the him? We're getting there. But in Psalm 8, who is him? Man. Right? You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him, who's him? Man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 speaks about God's design for man. Mankind. God has made man a little lower than the angels. And God has given mankind dominion over the works of the Lord's hands. And has put all of the works of the Lord's hands under man's feet. All sheep and oxen, all birds of the field, etc. This is the teaching of Psalm 8. Now, before we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, what other passage does this make you think about? It should make you think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Listen to what it says in Genesis 1. Let me begin at verse 26 and read through to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. So Psalm 8 is speaking about what God did in the beginning. Creating man and putting him over all of creation. Now, when I say that God put him over all of creation and put all things in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. See, now I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 27. When all things. Um, but nevertheless, God has put all things, not himself, but all created things under man. See? Now, the duty of man then is to bring all things to their intended order and flourishing to subdue the earth. Why? Well, what does Romans eleven thirty six tell us about the purpose of all things? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So, when mankind develops the, all the potentiality that God wove into the earth, and as we read in Genesis 2, there had been certain plants that hadn't sprung up yet because there was no man to till the field, right to work the land. So man had to go out, even though there was no sin, there was, there was work to be done. There was, some of you might remember when I was preaching on that section in Genesis, there was God brought light, order, and life into being. And then man's job was to bring more light, order, and life into being. Eventually, of course, what happened was that mankind fell into sin. And when mankind fell into sin. Not only had they failed to develop all of the potentiality and and make earth full of light, order, and life the way that they ought to have, but the hypothetical mandate expanded to destroying every kingdom, rule, and authority which is antithetical to the Lord's rule. See? Weeds, essentially, thorns and thistles came into the ground, but thorns and thistles also came into society, as it were. So working the land prior to the fall meant no thorns and thistles, literally, and no thorns and thistles figuratively. But after the fall into sin, in order to exercise dominion, in order to fill the earth and subdue it, you would not only have to do what would bring about light, order, and life positively, but you would also have to remove that which is against light, order, in life. Thorns and thistles. And every rule and authority that sets itself up against God. Alright, you tracking with me so far? If we go back to 1 Corinthians 15 we see an important contrast in verse 21 and 22 between Adam and Christ. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we know that God created Adam as a representative of mankind. And everybody who's represented by Adam... dies. Everybody who is represented by Adam is under condemnation... because Adam didn't do what Adam was supposed to do. Right? Now, the contrast that is set up here... is... as in Adam all die... so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we know that just as Adam was appointed as a representative of mankind, so was Christ Jesus. And so as those who are represented by Adam die and perish, because Adam failed to do what he should have done, but did not, everyone who is represented by Christ Jesus has eternal life. Because Christ Jesus did what he ought to have done. Alright, now we typically think of this in terms of, uh, in terms of morality, right? Keeping the commandments and so on and so forth. And that's true. That's a, that's a crucial and important part of what the Bible teaches us about the, the work of Adam contrasted with the work of Christ. But what 1 Corinthians develops is the idea here that Christ, in His kingdom exercises dominion in a way that Adam should have done and did not do and will bring everything into subjection to him the way that Adam was in the beginning created to have done, but did not. As we go on in 1 Corinthians 15, it says here, Then comes the end, verse 24, when He, that is Christ Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, quote from Psalm 8, God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. What this is telling us is that Christ Jesus most ultimately fulfills Psalm 8. Christ Jesus most ultimately fulfills Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Christ Jesus actually brings about The, the, not only the removal of thorns and thistles that have come into this world because of the fall, destroying every... What does it say? The exact words here. At de, verse 24. Destroying every rule and every authority and power. But also what Christ Jesus does is actually successfully brings and puts all things under His feet. And makes all things in subjection to Him. When the snake came into the garden, who was in charge? I, heard, I, think, I think I heard God, the snake, and Adam. Let's try to get a consensus here. When the snake came into the garden, was it a created thing? Was it one of the works of the Lord's hands? Therefore, was it put in subjection to man? So when the snake came into the garden, who was in charge rightfully? And yet Adam did not bring the snake in subjection to him, did he? But instead he subjected himself to the snake. See? What 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us is that Jesus acts as the consummate man. The consummate second Adam. Adam doing what the first Adam should have done but did not do and he actually subdued the earth. He actually exercised dominion over it. He actually pulled up all the thorns and thistles that came into this world because of Adam or he will have done by the time that all of this comes to pass in which is told us in 1 Corinthians 15. And he will put everything under his feet and bring everything into order. Will there be any snakes who exert their influence and authority over Christ Jesus? No. Instead, what did Jesus do? Crush the serpent's head. You see? So what 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us is that the world, all of created things, are actually going to come to their intended end through Christ Jesus. The way that the world would have actually been better in the end than it was even in the beginning when it was created very good. If Adam would have fulfilled the purpose for which he was created and the purpose which God gave him in the garden, which was to fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion, the earth itself would have got better. The world that we lived in would have been more awesome if Adam had done his job even than it was in the beginning when God pronounced it good and very good. But what happened, instead of it getting better, was it got worse because of what Adam did. But 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that all is not lost, but in comes Jesus to act as a second Adam, to act as a consummate man, to fulfill Psalm 8, and in doing so to fulfill the original creation mandate of Genesis 1, So that everything actually comes under the rulership of God's appointed vice-regent over creation, which is man. So Jesus, in his divinity, is always co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, and he's never inferior. And with respect to his divinity, he never subjects himself in any way that makes him inferior to the Father. But as pertains to His humanity, He is the human Messiah. He is the second Adam. And this is what it's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, when it says that when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. As Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer. I glorified you on earth, John 17, 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. There is a very real sense in which at the end of all things, he will say something similar. I have accomplished all of the work that you have given me to do in terms of bringing my kingdom to consummation and completion and I've destroyed every other rule and authority and power and, and in doing so I have glorified you and all then redounds to the praise of God whose plan this was. Right? And we will see the vice regent, Christ Jesus, acting as the second Adam, as the consummate man, doing that work to the glory of God. Right? From Him... And through Him and to Him are all things. So, what 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us is that not only is one of our hopes that we will be raised. But the other hope is that we will be raised to live in creation fixed. Creation consummated in in, in its consummated intended glory and bliss and goodness which Adam should have was responsible to bring to fruition but did not and yet Christ Jesus has come in to do you see this is our these are our twin hopes resurrection and everything under the feet of Christ Jesus which means everything's fixed. No loose ends to be tied up. No more sin. No more rebellion. He's removed from his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. No more talking snakes. Right? The head of the serpent has been crushed. No more tears, as Revelation 21 says. And according to First Corinthians 15, no more death. So you are not just going to be raised, but you are going to be raised with no more knee problems. You are not just going to be raised, but you're going to be raised with no more relational strife and conflict. Not only are you going to be raised, but you are going to be raised to live in a world where there are no more tornadoes and tsunamis and so on and so forth. You are going to be raised to live in a world where there is no cancer. You are going to be raised to live in in a world where nobody lacks running water and safe access to drinking water simply because the, the infrastructure doesn't exist. There's going to be no more disorder or uncultivated, untapped potentiality of things, but everything will have been brought into its intended 2.0 state through Christ Jesus. These are the twin Christian hopes. Resurrection, right? A new you. You 2.0 and a new world. A world 2.0. Right? New heavens and new earth. Alright? So this is the twin Christian hopes. What Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 15, is that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Oh, you're hoping to be resurrected? You're hoping to live in a fixed and better world? Well, guess what? If Jesus has not been raised... Your faith in those things is futile. Who's going to do it for you? Who is going to bring you out of the grave if Christ has not been raised? Everyone dies. You might say, well, Lazarus. Lazarus was raised. Where is Lazarus now? Where is Lazarus now? He was raised only to die again a few short years later. Your hope in Lazarus is futile. Because even Lazarus couldn't keep himself alive after he was resurrected. There is no hope if no one has been able to save themselves from death. If no one has been able to take up their life again after they laid it down, then no one can take you up after you die. Who is going to bring everything into subjection under their feet and fix this world? Think about the best king, the best political ruler of, of all time. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this. What do we, what do we talk about? Geo- geography? So maybe Genghis Khan? <laughs> right? Or Alexander the Great? Well, listen, it wasn't paradise under those guys. Right? Or maybe we say, well, not the pagan kings, but let's look at the kings of Israel, the appointed kings. How about David? who's probably the high watermark, all things being equal. Look, David couldn't even bring his own family into subjection under his feet. If you go through and you read the account of that period of Israel's history, David's family was profoundly, profoundly dysfunctional. He didn't manage his own household well and wouldn't even be qualified, therefore, to be an elder in a New Testament church. David could not bring everything into subjection under his feet. Globally, he couldn't even do it in his own household, and he couldn't even do it, frankly, in his own kingdom. There were lots of rebellions, and at various points in his life, he was on the run. Who is your hope in, if not Jesus? Lazarus? David? Right? In making... In making that comment about David's suitability to be an elder in a New Testament church, I'm not trying to be self-righteous. Who's your hope in me? <laughs> right? You understand, you're, you're laughing, and rightly so. Look, I can't, bring, I can't raise you up either. I'll be honest with you. When you die, I can't bring you back. All right? If any of you were counting on it, it's not going to happen. Sorry, you've been, you've, been, you've been duped. You've been misled. And I can't bring all things into subjection under my feet. If Jesus has not been raised, there is no one who's going to bring you up out of the grave and there's no one who's going to put all things into subjection under his feet and bring about God's original intended purpose of all things being not just good and very good, but better than they were in the beginning. There is no one who's going to get us to that point if Jesus has not been raised. Paul says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15 but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead now this is the crux of the matter whether this statement is true or not the Christian claim of course is that it is the opponents of Christianity would argue that it isn't. And this is everything. This is everything. The objective truth or falsehood of this claim is entirely determinative of the value of Christianity. If it is true that in fact Christ has been raised then that means one thing. And if it is not true that in fact Christ has been raised, then that means something else altogether. Christianity cannot be mildly important. Listen to C.S. Lewis. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I hope everybody understands that. If Jesus was not raised, we are all utterly wasting our time here this morning. This is not the most entertaining thing to do on a Sunday. This is not the most comfortable and and pleasant way that you could spend your Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. There are many things that you could be doing right now which you're choosing not to to be here. If Jesus has not been raised, you're missing out on a number of other worthwhile things that this world has to offer. I'm not even just talking about sin. What we're doing here is utterly useless. If Jesus has not been raised. Alright, this is what Paul, this is what Paul is talking about here. If Jesus hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. You're totally wasting your time. This is like... This would be like a meeting of the Unicorn Society. (laughs) I mean, I guess... To be fair and to be logical... If you're into that... And it's fun for you to go meet at the Unicorn Society... Well, to each his own, I suppose. And if you like myths of an ancient guy that make your life harder... Make your life more difficult and... Really challenge you and, and bring a lot of false guilt into your life... You know, and like well I suppose to each his own, but but objectively speaking, there is no real worthwhileness in Christianity if Christ has not been raised. Paul stakes everything on this. But Paul stresses that it is true that in fact Christ has been raised. Verse twenty. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul marshals eyewitness testimony and elaborates and and belabors upon this. The reason he does this is because he's at pains to show us that this is objectively true. This is objectively true. It's not just that Paul thinks it's true. But it is objectively true. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. First 1 Corinthians 15 5. Even just right there, alright? Even just right there. Let's say, I was just talking about Genghis Khan moment ago. Let's say that I came to you and said, I'm really quite concerned. Well, what are you concerned about, John? Genghis Khan is back. <laughs> Alright? Listen, if he if he only appeared to Cephas, okay, and Cephas was like, Jesus is back. Right? That would not... You, you would think something of Cephas is... Sanity. But he says, Cephas, then to the twelve. And remember, he appeared to a bunch of them at once. Right? Then he says that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6. Then he says, most of whom are still alive. Though some, admittedly, some have fallen asleep, which means some died. The point of this is you can go to Jerusalem and you can talk to people who saw him together with several other people at the same time. So, we know in a court of law, if one person comes and says, you know, I saw this or that, that's one thing. If two or three come, that's another thing. If you can marshal 500 witnesses... Then that's a whole other thing altogether, right? If we can't, if we can't accept the eyewitness testimony of 500 people that saw this all at once, whom the original readers here could just go verify this, if they were concerned to do so, we can't know anything. The reason being you take almost everything you know on a lot less evidence. So if you if you posit the possibility of knowing things, all right, then you have a basis upon which you think that you can know those things. And if the basis upon which you think you know things, or if the standard, which you require for thinking you know things is higher than 500 people seeing it at one time, you gotta soberly reconsider most things you know. Like, like whether there is, for example, England. Like, have you been there? Have you seen it with your own eyes? Have you touched the ground yourself? Right? You know, like, there. This is, this is sound, reasonable evidence. There's a video circulating. It's a parody. It's a satire. Some of you, no doubt, have seen it. It was just released maybe two or three weeks ago in lead up to the Easter season. Where the disciples of Jesus, after he dies, they get together and they plan a hoax right because this is the this is the argument right this is the argument that all of these eyewitnesses were lying and that it's a hoax all right so this this little parody this little satire mocks that idea and so these guys get together and one of them stands up and says hey I got this idea we all know Jesus is dead but let's say that he's alive (laughs) you know it's like and then what and then we'll all go to prison and suffer and die and it's like, one of them's like, "But what do we get out of it?" Say like, nothing. <laughs> see, that's the that's the genius of it is that everyone will think we're telling the truth because we stand nothing to gain by it, and they'll all be deceived. And it's like, "Yeah, but we'll be dead." Yeah, but never mind that. It'll be a great hoax. It'll be the greatest hoax ever. And you see, you begin to see the absurdity. There are so many reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, not least of which is that there are good reasons to believe that the Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God, and the Bible tells us so, right? But the eyewitness thing is really hard to get away from, because people don't actually die for what they consciously believe is a lie. They don't tell you that they're not afraid of the flames or the lions if they don't seriously believe that they will be resurrected. And these guys seriously believed that they would be resurrected because they seriously believed that Jesus was alive. Alright, so our hope for resurrection and our hope for a better world depends on the objective reality that Christ Jesus was raised away with liberal Christianity which denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus alright there are quote unquote Christians who gather Sunday by Sunday and say well we don't really believe that Jesus did miracles but these are inspirational stories for us which guide our lives and help us see the various virtues that we can adopt in our modern world and we believe that Jesus rose in our hearts to show us a better way, right? And nonsense like this. Look, if Jesus is dead, right? And I don't, and I don't believe he is, right? But if he is, I don't mean this blasphemously, but he's rotting. And if that's the case, then our faith is futile that we will be resurrected and that there will be a better world, all right? But in fact, Christ has been raised. Paul is at pains to press this upon us. In fact, Christ has been raised. And therefore, what this means, because Jesus has been raised, what this means is that we have that hope of a resurrection. Whoever believes in Him, even though He dies, yet shall He live. There is coming, creation 2.0, a better world. Where God wipes away every tear from our eyes. And sickness and sorrow and mourning and crying and pain. Even death. Are no more. For he has made all things new. This is our glorious hope as Christians. And this is our central hope. There may be lots of things that you're wondering about. About Christianity. There may be lots of doctrines that you don't understand. You may have all kinds of questions about this issue or or that issue there may be a lot of things that you don't know but if you can settle that Jesus really did rise then I hope you can see that it's pretty self-evident that you should follow that guy that you should believe in that guy that you should hope in that guy and that you should take to take to the bank whatever that guy said if He rose, that changes everything. If you can know that, and you can then you can learn all the other things with time. But in the first place, to become a Christian is to begin to root your hope in the fact that because Jesus lived, died, and rose, and tells us that He's going to raise us, and He's going to fix everything, and make everything new. That's the central, first, fundamental thing that you've got to settle in your mind and believe and take it to the bank. And that's what it means in the first place to become a Christian. And you can keep reading, you can keep learning, you can keep asking other questions. But if Jesus really did rise, if Jesus really did rise, that vindicates Christianity. And that means that you should be one. And if you already are one, it means that you should be confident and joyful and bold and committed to live like one. Because if Jesus rose, then your destiny is to be raised up and to live with him in creation 2.0 forever. And it seems self-evident that that should shape the way that we live this brief and fleeting life that we are presently in.